Hello and welcome to the Saintly Progress Podcast. Episode 1, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Priest and Martyr, 1945. In 1998, George Kerry, then Archbishop of Canterbury, unveiled statues of ten modern martyrs above the Great West Door of Westminster Abbey. According to the Abbey's excellent website, the niches had never had statues, although it was obviously intended that they should. Instead of traditional figures of kings or saints, it was thought that martyrs of the 20th century should be remembered. The statues were chosen to represent Christians from every continent who had died during the 20th century at the hands of oppressors or persecutors. Not all were killed as conventional early church-style martyrs, in the sense that they were killed simply because they were Christians. Rather, these martyrs were often motivated to resist political oppression because of their Christian faith, and suffered the consequences. One of these ten martyrs is the German theologian and Lutheran minister Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose strong faith led him to denounce and work against the Nazi regime in Germany, and he was executed at Flessenburg concentration camp on the 9th of April 1945. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably one of the most prominent Christians of the 20th century, known for his struggle against the Nazis, but also for his theological writings, his prayers and his poetry. And Bonhoeffer is the subject of this, the first episode of my new podcast, Saintly Progress, which will track the history of the Christian church through the lives of the heroes and heroines of the faith. I'll talk a little bit more about the podcast project and my choice of subjects at the end of the episode. For now, let's talk about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is famous as an inspirational theologian and for helping to organise the German church's resistance to the Nazis. His theology is connected to his political activity. And now I'm not an academic theologian, so I will probably not be able to do justice to the full weight of his thoughts, but I'll do my best. Broadly, his point seems to have been that Christian theology must place Christ at its centre. Christianity must be Christ-focused, or it ceases to be Christianity at all. If the Christian church places anything other than God revealed in Jesus Christ at the centre of its belief and worship, that is a fundamental departure from the Christian message and undermines the whole thing. Bonhoeffer's famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, overall says that Christians have a stark choice. To accept God's call and become a disciple of Jesus, accepting all that entails, or to reject God and be a person in and of the world. And his theology was political. Both his thoughts and his political activity were reactions to the Nazi regime in Germany and the relationship that the mainstream German Protestant church had with the Nazis. I'll go into this in a bit more detail a little later, but the long and short of that is that the Nazis were a decidedly unchristian organisation masquerading as a Christian one and much of the church in Germany compromised its position by accepting, or at least towing, the Nazi line. Bonhoeffer believed that the decisions of the mainstream Protestant church in Germany to go along with the Nazis undermined their integrity as a Christian church. In this podcast, I will begin with a little bit of context explaining the state of the German Protestant church at the beginning of the Nazi era. We'll then look at the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, And at the end, I will attempt a short layman's digest of his theology. Sound good? 
All right, let's go. When the Nazis came to power in 1933, they had a policy for the church as they did for everything else. The Nazis wanted to subordinate all aspects of German life to the party, to Nazify everything in public and private life, and that of course included the church. So in 1933, they engineered for the separate German Protestant churches in the different German regions to amalgamate into a single organisation, the Reichskirche, with a single leader, or Reichsbischof. This was only part of their agenda to Nazify the church and Christianity in Germany. Their programme was supported by many Germans, uh, for reasons which we'll talk about in a bit, but others, of course, opposed them. Into this picture of an increasingly heated debate within the German church steps our man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who quickly emerged as one of the leaders of the opposition movement to the Nazification of German Christianity. So, let's introduce Bonhoeffer properly. He was born in 1906 in Breslau in Silesia, which is now part of southern Poland but was then part of the Prussian heartland. Any short account of Bonhoeffer's life usually includes a little discussion of his family, partly because it is useful to his story to understand that he came from a comfortable background, but also because several of his family members, including a brother and two brothers-in-law, were also executed by the Nazis as political dissidents. The family was apparently not very religious, and so Dietrich caused quite a stir when he announced that he wanted to get ordained at the age of 13. He seems to have been motivated from that early age by a strong sense of calling to a religious life. He studied at the University of Berlin, briefly in Rome, and also at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where he regularly worshipped at the Abyssinia Baptist Church in Harlem. This was apparently a centre of both enthusiastic, sincere faith and the cultural movement called the Harlem Renaissance. I find it quite interesting that whilst living abroad, he would choose not to worship in one of the German-speaking congregations which presumably existed in New York City, or even in a local church that was similar to his own tradition. That would be the normal practice for most Christian expats. He found something which was radically different from what he knew, which perhaps speaks to a desire to find this honest, authentic, Jesus-centred Christianity. He claimed to find a lot more real Christianity in Harlem than he did at Union Theological Seminary. In Harlem, he encountered the gospel of social justice, that the Christian church should work to promote the cause of the oppressed minorities. He taught Sunday school at the church there and gained a lifelong love, apparently, of African-American spirituals. He seems to have been interested in ecumenism, that is, international and interdenominational cooperation between churches after his study in Rome and New York. And I also detect a hint about him of what would later become known as liberation theology, a Christian movement which states that God in Jesus takes the side of the downtrodden and the oppressed, and that the church should work to lift people up out of poverty and oppression. I certainly see that in his choosing to work in Harlem rather than at an affluent white church. And you can maybe see a bit of that in his opposition to the Nazis later in life. In 1931, he returned to Germany and became a lecturer in systematic theology at the University of Berlin. And in November of that year, he was ordained as a minister in the United Church of Prussia. It was in this context 
that Bonhoeffer began to move in the circles of resistance to what the Nazis were doing with German Protestantism. In the 1930s, as we talked about earlier, the Nazis were trying to make headway into the German Protestant churches, and there were two strands of tradition in German Christian thought which came together to make this possible. The first strand is the quote-unquote liberal academic rationalist tradition, which was popular in many German universities. This broadly said that God could be understood principally through reason, and consequently that traditional church beliefs and also scripture were not necessary and could be jettisoned. There was also a theological tradition, going back to Martin Luther, that Christianity involved the redaction of Judaism. This led some, but of course a minority, of German theologians to reject the whole Old Testament and laid the groundwork for a distinctly anti-Semitic vein in German Protestant thought. The other strand of German Protestantism, which allowed it to accommodate the Nazis, was more political than theological. Basically, the German churches had always been very close to political powers. They had backed the German Empire, and the vast majority of clergy shared in the sense of betrayal that many Germans felt at the end of World War I. Diarmid McCulloch suggests that 80% of the German Protestant clergy were monarchist, angry nationalists, and therefore enemies of the Weimar Republic, which was set up after the war. This feeling was particularly prominent in Prussia, uh, that is the northeastern part of uh, of Germany, and it seems that Prussian Protestants formed much of the electoral support for Hitler and the Nazis. These strands, theological rationalism, anti-Semitism and angry nationalism, combined in making a large group of German Protestants sympathetic to the Nazi programme. In 1932, the Nazi party established an organisation called the Deutsche Christen, or the German Christians, which was meant to subordinate Christianity to Germanness and try to become the main voice of German Protestantism. One particularly wild part of their programme was to produce a version of the Bible which contained no reference to Judaism, and to suggest that Galilee must have been an enclave of Aryan settlement, so that Christ was not in fact Jewish at all. They encouraged individuals to join this organisation, and they contested church elections to try to gain control of the structures of the German churches. It's in this context that the Nazis came to power. When they did so, they managed to amalgamate all the regional churches into a single body, the Reichskirche. The German Christian movement managed to get its leading pastor, Ludwig Müller, elected as Reichsbischof. Of course, all this activity, and particularly the attempts to pervert Christianity to remove Jewish influence and subordinate it to German culture, provoked reaction and debate within German Protestantism. One of the leaders in this resistance was the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who vocally rejected any idea that you could understand or come close to God through reason alone. Fallen humankind is hopelessly flawed, he said, so human reason is corruptible, and so humankind could only reach God through the action and mediation of Jesus. Barth said that any attempt to put anything other than Jesus 
including, of course, the German state or the Nazi party, on the altar, was an anathema. Our man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was one of those who agreed with Barth in this critique of uh, German liberalism. In response to the organisation of the Reichskirche and the German Christians, Barth and other opposition clergy formed their own movement, which became known as the Confessing Church. In 1934, they issued a declaration presenting what it believed was its genuine evangelical and reformed faith against the, and I'm quoting here, destructive errors of the German Christians and the present national church government. Basically, they were saying that Christianity had to be about Jesus, not about the German nation or the Nazi party. It is important to note here that although this was a courageous thing to do, the confessing church always constituted a minority of Protestant clergy. As we've already seen, many clergy were angry nationalists who broadly supported what the Nazis were doing, and of course, uh, many clergy would have been just as confused and afraid as everyone else. It's important to remember that at this time Germany was chaotic and may have seemed on the brink of collapse, with gangs of communist and Nazi thugs roaming the streets and beating up their opponents. Clergy did not want to get beaten up themselves, and when the Nazis came to power, religious opposition very quickly became political opposition. Senior Protestant clergy, like the bishops of Bavaria and Württemberg, were arrested for speaking out against the Nazis. Also, I think it must have been confusing for many, because the Nazis presented themselves as a Christian movement, when really, of course, they were not. I'm not trying to defend the clergy who acquiesced to the Nazis, or who let it all happen and signed oaths of loyalty to Hitler, but it is the duty of historians, I think, to put themselves in the shoes of people in history and to try to work out why they made the decisions they did. We could perhaps ask ourselves if we really would have acted any differently. But clearly, there were some clergy who did act differently, and that brings us back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Throughout the 1930s, Bonhoeffer lived for some time in England as pastor of the German Lutheran Congregation in London, and some time in Germany, where he helped to organise the Confessing Church. While he was in Germany, he led an illegal seminary at a place called Finkelwalde, training clergy for the Confessing Church. In a manor house donated by a sympathetic family, Bonhoeffer ran clergy retreats and trained theology students. I'm quoting now from a blog on the website of Stanford University's Divinity School. This church community shared life together. Morning and evening worship, study, relaxation, theological debate, singing, and the frustrations associated with communal living. Even though it was illegal for members of the confessing church to meet, Bonhoeffer continued this work, quietly keeping the flame of what he held to be the true Christian faith alive. Finkelwalder Seminary was shut down by the Gestapo in 1937, and they also began to arrest confessing church pastors and Bonhoeffer's former students. It was around this time that he wrote his famous work of theology, The Cost of Discipleship. He spent the next two years travelling around the German countryside, carrying out an underground seminary on the run, visiting clergy operating in secret rural communities. 
it was in 1938, that he made his first contacts with the German resistance movement, forming connections with opposition groups working in secret in the Abwehr, the Nazi equivalent of MI6 or the CIA. In June 1939, with the war imminent, he left for the USA in order to take up a teaching post at Union Theological Seminary in New York. This was a controversial move. He had been criticised by his former mentor, Karl Barth, for leaving Germany to work in London, a move which Barth thought was abandoning his post. Apparently, Bonhoeffer regretted his decision as soon as he arrived in New York, and he returned to Germany just before the war began. He wrote to his friend and colleague, Reinhold Niebuhr, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. On his return to Germany, he was quickly barred from preaching or speaking in public. In 1941, he was forbidden to publish. It seems that as his church work was increasingly restricted, he was recruited by his acquaintances in the German military intelligence to work for the Reich as a spy. His contacts told their Nazi superiors that Bonhoeffer's ecumenical contacts with church leaders abroad would allow him to collect useful information to pass back to the German government. In fact, Bonhoeffer used his position to work as a double agent, passing information about the German government's activities and the work of the resistance movement to the Allies. During the war, he made several trips to neutral countries like Switzerland and Sweden, where he was able to meet friends from before the war, like George Bell, the Bishop of Chichester, through whom he passed information to the British Foreign Office. He and his brother-in-law Hans von Donjani also helped some German Jews to escape to Switzerland. The Nazis clearly became suspicious of his activities, as Bonhoeffer was arrested on the 5th of April, 1943, and imprisoned at Tegel Military Prison. One remarkable thing about Bonhoeffer was his ability to make human connections with people in almost any context. He seems to have formed friendships with both guards and prisoners, and carried on religious outreach, teaching and counselling, and led worship, even in prison. Sympathetic guards helped smuggle his writings and letters out of prison, which were published after the war. Over a year later, on the 20th of July 1944, a Wehrmacht officer, Count Klaus von Stauffenberg, attempted to assassinate Hitler. This was part of a failed attempt by a resistance group of Nazi officers, noblemen and pre-war politicians to stage a coup, get rid of the Nazis and end the war. Famously, it failed, as Stauffenberg did not succeed in killing Hitler. In September 1944, documents were discovered revealing the resistance network within the Abwehr and linking this network to the assassination attempt. The documents implicated Bonhoeffer, 
describing him as the spiritual head of the conspiracy. He was moved from Tegel prison to a Gestapo prison in Berlin, and then to Buchenwald concentration camp, and eventually to Flossenburg, another concentration camp in the south of Germany. In April 1945, with the Allied armies now inside Germany's borders, the Nazis discovered the diaries of Admiral Canaris, the head of the Abwehr. Hitler ordered all of the Canaris group of Abwehr conspirators executed. On April the 5th, Bonhoeffer was condemned to death in a summary court at the camp, and the following day, 9th of April 1945, he was executed by hanging alongside Admiral Canaris and several other conspirators. The US Army liberated the camp just two weeks later. The Germans had by this stage clearly lost the war. Execution, at this late stage, was nothing more than revengeful score-setting. But, remarkably, Bonhoeffer continued his ministry until the very end. On the last Sunday before his trial, Bonhoeffer was asked to conduct a service in the camp. He preached on Isaiah 53, By his wounds we are healed. In choosing an Old Testament text, he was placing himself in the shoes of the Old Testament prophets, speaking God's truth to power and suffering the consequences. This was the end of the life of an extraordinary Christian thinker, teacher and activist. He was clearly significant in his own time, and has become even more significant in the decades since his death, thanks to the legacy of tough theology and deeply moving spiritual writings he left behind. This, now, is the part of the podcast where I will try to talk briefly about theology. Uh, now, I should say here that I'm not, again, an, an academic theologian, and I certainly haven't read all or much of Bonhoeffer's writings. This is where my theologian friends would be able to point out all sorts of holes in what I'm about to say, but I don't think an account of Bonhoeffer would be complete without briefly talking about his, uh, his thoughts and beliefs, so here we go, I'll try my best. His famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, contains his belief that Christianity should not necessarily be easy, and that Christians should not expect to be the recipients of Jesus' redemption simply by believing or saying they believe. Christianity, or to be more specific, Christian discipleship, is a choice. People are presented with the choice to become Jesus' follower, and that should involve life-changing consequences. It should require Christians to do some things in a different way, respond to things uh, in a new way. It should be countercultural, And this is the crux of the argument, I think. In many cases, Bonhoeffer says that Christians are given a choice between the world and Jesus, and if they want to call themselves disciples, then they should choose Jesus, even if that way leads to their own crucifixion. A lot of this thought can be traced back to the, those ideas of Karl Barth, who we talked about at the top of this episode. The idea is that Christianity must ultimately be about Jesus, and anything that gets in the way of that is a distraction and sometimes nullifies the whole Christian life. I don't think Bonhoeffer means that everyone has to suffer in order to be a Christian. That's not really practical apart from anything else. I think he means that Christians shouldn't allow themselves separate spheres in their lives, the Christian sphere and the worldly sphere. They should try to live their whole lives as they think Jesus would want, 
and using the love and teachings of Jesus as a mediator in all their relationships. Alongside this complicated and sometimes quite challenging theological writings, Bonhoeffer's legacy includes beautiful poetry and prayers. His poems, written from prison, speak of a desperate cry to God when the whole world seems to have abandoned him and darkness is closing in. But at the same time, they speak of hope. And this is really powerful, I think. A hope that even in times of great hardship, he believed that God was there for him. And even if his own life would end, things would be well in the end. And lastly, I think Bonhoeffer serves an important role as the symbolic martyr for German Protestant resistance to Nazism. There were not many among that resistance, as we talked about earlier. As with most of German society, many clergy acquiesced to the regime. They kept their heads down, tended to their congregations, and no doubt carried on important Christian work. But there was no wholesale condemnation of the Nazi state and the evils it committed. Now, this is not the place to ask, for instance, how much people really knew of the atrocities. As I said earlier, I don't know how harshly we really can judge the Germans in the 1930s, Protestant or otherwise. They were no doubt scared and confused, partly taken in by some of the programme, partly just carrying on with their lives. I think because of this, the post-war German nation, and notably the German church, has a sense of guilt that they should have done and said more. And this is why Bonhoeffer has become so important. He represents not only those clergy who did resist and suffer the consequences, but also perhaps stands as a model for how others could and should have acted. He is a representation of the way the German church thinks it should have acted and wishes it had done so, as well as a brave example of the small part that did resist. So, why is Bonhoeffer in this podcast? Well, this is where I'll talk very quickly about this podcast project overall. I've been thinking for some time now about making a podcast about church history through the lives of some of its leading figures. In most Christian traditions, leading figures in the life of the church are called saints. And so this uh, is the word that I'm going to be going with. This is a podcast about the lives of the saints. But I'm not being especially strict about who qualifies as a saint. The Roman Catholic Church has strict rules. They believe that someone with the title of saint has to be officially recognised by a process known as canonization. But there are, of course, many other important Christians who have made notable contributions to the life of the Church who are not Roman Catholics and who have not been officially canonised. In the Anglican Church, for instance, Many men and women from across the centuries and many different traditions are recognised and commemorated in the calendar. For the purposes of this podcast, a saint is any Christian in the past who is recognised as being exceptionally holy or has made some important contribution to Christian history. I am going to try to talk about a different saint each week. Saints are traditionally remembered on the date of their death rather than their birthday, 
as this is the day when they entered heaven. And so my plan is to choose a saint whose death date or feast day falls within that week. And I should say that this is primarily meant to be a history podcast, a church history podcast, but by the nature of its content, it is perhaps also a podcast that people may find interesting from a religion perspective as well. I'm talking about Bonhoeffer today because his feast day happened to fall last week on the 9th of April. By coincidence, this year that date was Maundy Thursday in the week approaching Easter and the 75th anniversary of his death. I like thinking about Bonhoeffer because he can show us an example of courage, the courage to do the right thing, regardless of the consequences to ourselves. I do sincerely hope that I or any of you listening are never called to make the same choices as Bonhoeffer, but I also hope that perhaps if we were ever called to do so, we might be able to remember his example. Thank you for listening to this, the first episode of the Saintly Progress podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do consider subscribing and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listened to this. If you'd like to get in touch, you can send me an email at saintlyprogress at gmail.com. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about St. Alphage, the 11th century Archbishop of Canterbury martyred by the Vikings. Until then, thanks for listening and bye for now.